Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to Stand Up For The Truth, for your prayers, for this ministry, for sharing our podcasts. And uh, if you ever have something that you're going through that you need prayer, take this email down. It's very simple. Comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Send us your prayer request. It's not for the podcast, not for on air, just so I and we can pray for you, whatever you're going through. So get a hold of us, especially during this time. You know, Christians, we're not supermen and superwomen, but we're, you know, we're in this life. We're not of this world, but we're here going through the same, many of the same things, especially in the days of the coronavirus. And that's what we're going to talk about today, God's sovereignty in the midst of uh, coronavirus, hope during this time during pandemics, and what does God's Word have to say about it? Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this hour, for this day, of course, that you've made. You are faithful. Your mercies endure forever, and your mercies are new every morning. We thank you. We receive your truth and your promises today and every day, Lord. Thank you for the secure hope that we have in you. That hope is an anchor to our soul. Give us wisdom, Lord. We need it more and more every day, and give us discernment and help us to be about your business. A lot of people need encouragement and hope. Others need truth, and others need the fear of God. But, Lord, help us in every conversation, in every interaction, know how to respond to each person, whether they be saved or unsaved. And use us, Lord. We are here for you. Uh, Here we are. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is God, where does God stand in relationship to disease? disasters, other natural evils. What has God promised in his word that can help assure our hearts during this coronavirus pandemic? By understanding the sovereignty of God and promises of eternal life, we can be prepared and also strengthened for anything that comes our way and may in the future. Today's guest, we're thrilled to welcome back Stephen Bancars, an author, content creator on YouTube, He was a full-time writer for one of the largest New Age websites in the world, and he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, quit his job in 2015, and surrendered fully to Jesus. He's since been in full-time ministry, exposing the deception of the New Age movement. He founded the Apologetics website, and I'll tell you guys, we have this linked up. It's a phenomenal resource, Reasons for Jesus. He's been featured on programs like the 700 Club, 100 Huntley Street, Skywatch TV, Uh, He's been with us before. He's been on Jan Markell's Understanding the Times. He co-authored the best-selling book, The Second Coming of the New Age. The subtitle is The Hidden Dangers of Alternative Spirituality in Contemporary America and Its Churches. He's with us today to discuss God's sovereignty in the midst of COVID-19. Stephen Bancars, welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Great to have you on, brother. All right, before we get into... uh, some of the craziness and some of the discernment issues we have to talk about, and of course the hope in God's Word. Um, You're in southern Ontario. How is this pandemic affecting you in the, you know, southern part of Canada? Well, I came back to Canada from the States in the middle of the pandemic. So when I got to Canada, it was mandatory by law that I self-quarantine away from anybody, isolated away from my own family even, in the basement. I'm not able to, you know, have any interaction with anybody. And after that time period expired, um, still all businesses are shut down. The only thing that are open things that are open are, you know, the drugstores and major grocery store chains. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's the same kind of craziness you have going on up here that you have down there. There's less deaths and less cases, but it's the same culture. It's the same atmosphere. And unfortunately, it's the same sort of general attitude of, of fear and chaos. Mm. And, um, you know, having an, a solid understanding of the Word of God and His sovereignty and His overarching plan for Humanity gives us comfort and assurance in that, and, and we'll be getting into that. Canada's a big country. Um, looking at 
what I think are recent COVID-19 stats, about uh, 2,000 dead during as a result of the coronavirus. That's the same amount as they have in Michigan. Actually, Michigan's getting closer to, to 3,000. And, of course, Michigan is not that far. If you look at Detroit, you know, from Canada, from Ontario, um, New York is hammered, absolutely hammered. Um, other parts of the country here, we're, we're struggling here, um, Stephen, because there are not as many cases and yet businesses are shut down. Churches can't meet. And by the way, local friends, there is a rally at the Wisconsin State Capitol in Madison at 1 p.m. today. For those of you that are considering going to that, uh, open, uh, open up for business or a freedom rally. Um, but, Stephen, how can you um, explain what different governments handle this in different ways? Um, mo- some of us uh, are not very impressed by Trudeau there in Canada. My wife and her family, who live in Toronto, by the way, oh, man, they can't stand him. But he got reelected, but now he's just making some crazy decisions there. And he, it seems like there's some power grabs going on. Um, that's just when, when someone doesn't know the Lord, you want power, you want fame, money. What are these the things we want in life, right? Can you tell us a little bit about how what you've noticed as far as different governors or governments or world leaders responding to this? Yeah, I've been I've been too fascinated with American politics to pay too much attention to what Trudeau <laughs> is doing because he's a he's a lost cause, and mm, I don't. Yeah, it, it's hard to listen to him for longer than thirty seconds without being frustrated at something he says or just his demeanor. Mm. And you know, I would really appreciate as a Canadian, right, as someone born and raised in this country, I would appreciate for his um, hatred of God mm. to stop drastically influencing the Canadian culture. Um, he hates God. He, he hates Christians. He hates the things of God, the law of God. And um, everyone knows that. Every conservative here in Canada knows that. That's what we think about Trudeau. And I was so surprised he got reelected. But yeah. it's been interesting to see this kind of war in the states between the Democrats and the Republicans and the, uh, the shots between Pelosi and Trump going back and forth. <laughs> yeah. And as a, <laughs> it's pretty interesting to see as a Canadian how involved um, American politicians are with one another, especially in terms of banter. Mm-hmm. But um, I would like to see businesses reopened. You know, I would like to see small businesses for there to be protocols in place. You know, I do think this is an instance, in my opinion, where um, the cure is becoming worse than the actual disease itself. Amen. Yes. And so I would like to see, you know, there to be um, a release of sovereignty back into the hands of local small businesses. And people want to go back to work. People want to leave their house. And um, we really don't. I, I do think that there's a little bit of um, uh, exaggeration going on, especially from mainstream media about I don't want to I don't want to diminish anyone who's been affected by this disease and how serious that is and mm-hmm. um, how dreadful it is. But just looking at, like, numbers statistically in terms of how many die each year from, like, the common flu, um, you know, you have 80% of people who catch the coronavirus don't need to go to the hospital once they catch it. And you have virtually 100% recovery rate rate for anyone with a a healthy functioning immune system who doesn't have a pre-existing condition or disease of some kind. Mm. And so um, I don't buy into all the fear. I don't buy into all the chaos, mostly because of the Word of God, the promises of God, the sovereignty of God, but also just because I'm trying to look at things objectively and statistically, and I guess that's my opinion as a, as a, as a Canadian from the outside looking in here. Well, we are going to talk much about the sovereignty of God, and especially in the second and third segment today, and we'll get to that in, in possibly in a few minutes here, because it is important to look at that as Christians. What we struggle with here on this side of the border in North America, in, in the U.S., is we have a constitution that is so exceptional and unheard of practically worldwide, and yet there are freedoms, it seems like, are being infringed upon by some, not all, some leaders in in government and particularly state governors. We're seeing some things, and and Christians are struggling. When you look at Romans 13, uh, you were supposed to submit to the authorities, right? Submit to the governing authorities. But And we're not yet struggling with, with someone telling us you cannot preach in the name of Jesus, you cannot say Jesus, which they did in Acts uh, 4 and 5. So we don't have that response yet. We must, of course, we must obey God rather than man. We're struggling with forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We are instructed in, in the book of Hebrews. And yet we cannot meet in person. Yes, we can have virtual church. 
actually it's not really church, it's just watching a sermon or a teaching online. What is your perspective, Stephen, on this whole virtual thing? Now everyone's doing, everyone and their brother and their cousin is doing some sort of uh, teaching or YouTube video. And, and I know it's reaching a lot of people, but at the same time, I really miss my church family. And a lot of Americans are really feeling that as well. Yeah, it's not an adequate replacement. Um, it's something that will be good for the time being. I like having meetings like that, you know, prayer calls with a group of people hopping on and just fellowshipping together. It's very, very edifying, but it doesn't replace the real God-ordained means by which He will pour out His presence and conduct His ministry, which is in local church assemblies, where you have a pastor, you have the offices of you know deacon and bishop, and you have um, a congregation who is supporting the teacher and not muzzling the ox, and everyone is giving and taking and receiving of the Lord in a local church assembly. That's his ordained means by which he's going to conduct um, ministry in our lives, and I, I want to see that back up and running as soon as possible. I did see this interesting case of one church in particular who uh, decided, you know, we're just going to follow the protocols and obey the rules, but we're still going to meet. We're going to have people worshiping outside on speakers, but we're going to have like an over this massive um, projector screen, mm-hmm. and we're going to have people get in their cars, and they can drive in and set their radio station to the station we're going to be broadcasting from, and you have the congregation all sitting there in their cars. They're all kind of together, and they're hearing a sermon, and, and they're worshiping along in their cars, and they're obeying all the laws of the land still. And um, so that's kind of an interesting way around it. But I agree with you. I would like to see um, local churches you know, back up and running, because I don't think that can really be replaced. Yeah, exactly. Well, Stephen, before we get into God's sovereignty and talk about the coronavirus, how to respond and how to just, I love the way you did in your recent video, and I will link that to our podcast post in the notes today. Um, phenomenal. Your COVID-19, God's Sovereignty and Eternal Life. Your book that you co-authored, The Second Coming of the New Age, um, we didn't get through it by any stretch last time we had you on with us, which was your first time here. So so thankful to have you back. And I just want to jump ahead to something I see. As, there's a lot of info and background on the New Age and on the major players, by the way. If you haven't checked out this book, friends, The Second Coming of the New Age. In Chapter 7, I think of the Coexist sticker, for one. Um, it's called Religious Pluralism, Tolerance, and Postmodern Rhetoric. And most of our listeners would understand exactly what you're going to probably talk about in this chapter, but can you give us a couple points from that, what we can take away from what we're dealing with, really, when you know all pathways lead to heaven or to God, and these false ideas that we're really coming to uh, recognize as it's, it's deception? Right. Well, it's, it, it stems from this idea in our culture right now of political correctness that is just has completely run rampant that all ideas about religion must be treated as though they are equal in their weight mm-hmm. like every single religious claim and religious uh, proposition must be regarded as having equal footing with the next religious idea or proposition and to suggest one is more unlikely than the other or one is wrong and one is true is the epitome of bigotry and intolerance in our culture today. And that's really silly when you think about it, because these are claims that are being made, oftentimes historical claims, um, philosophical claims that are being made by these religions, and they can be assessed through processes of logic and reason and the historical method and inference to the best explanation. We should apply the laws of logic and the rules of evidence and the rules of inference to religious claims, just like we should any Mm -hmm. other claim in the world. There's good and bad medicine. There's good and bad moral choices. There's good and bad theories about biochemistry and, you know, what goes on at subatomic levels. Not every single proposition is equal in terms of its truth value. And to give one quick example of this, people say, well, all religions, you know, they're equally true. And who are you to judge another person's religion? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm someone who has the words of God, the words of the living God, and I'm someone who also has a brain. So, for example, in Islam, where they say Jesus, in Surah 117, where they say Jesus did not die on the cross, but was only made to appear as though he died on the cross. Mm -hmm. Someone else actually died, and Jesus went and lived out a normal life. When you have the American Medical Association saying he died on the cross, when you have 12, at least 12, independent ancient historical sources coming from atheist 
historians like a Dr. Bart Ehrman, like a Gerd Ludemann, like an Ed Parrish Sanders, who are saying that the death of Jesus under the, the crucifixion of Jesus under the prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate, is one of the most certain historical facts in all of ancient history. We have 12 sources. Yes. And then you have one source coming 600 years later, after all the eyewitnesses have died, half a millennium later, saying, well, he actually didn't die on the cross, even though we have you know dozens of sources by that time. Um, telling us that Jesus Christ actually did die on the cross. So, you know, there's no reason to prefer one 600-year-later source over 12 early independent sources, a lot of which were during, written during the times of the eyewitnesses themselves. So we can, I would say Islam's false, demonstrably false, just on the basis of, of history, at least that claim is. And, but that's, you know, apparently religiously intolerant in our culture. They want to affirm all religions lead back to the same God, Another problem with that is that all religions contradict each other in telling us how to get there. Yes. <laughs> so it's impossible. All these, all these claims about who God is, who man is, how to have right relationship with God, they're all logically incompatible with one another. They can't possibly all be true at the same time. We need to assess them on the grounds of evidence like we would any other claim, and we find that monotheism, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, is like far outweighs. It's substantial and compared to any other religious claim, because you don't just have private religious experiences like those of Muhammad mm-hmm. or Joseph Smith being relayed to people. You have public experiences that were recorded by the eyewitnesses themselves during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And so these claims could be tested. Just to uh, give a really quick, quick example here, when, you have, when, you have, when you're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, a historian named Dr. Gary Habermas has developed what's called the minimalist facts approach to mm-hmm. understanding the resurrection. And what he describes is there's a certain set of facts that the vast majority of modern scholarship, including atheists and Jewish historians, would affirm as being historically true. The existence of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, the burial of Jesus, the empty tomb of Jesus, even though that's only about like maybe 74, 75% of historians, and then the other one, which virtually 99% of all historians agree upon, is that shortly after the death of Jesus, the disciples had experiences that caused them to believe Jesus had risen and appeared to them. And this was not once, but many times, indoors and outdoors to skeptics and unbelievers. And as Paul says in his creed in 1 Corinthians 15, this oral creed he's delivering, I delivered unto you, he's delivering to the church in Corinth something he received in earlier tradition. And this earlier tradition is dated, I could pull up 12 quotes right now, by modern scholarship, this creed dates to within three years of the death of Jesus. And he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom have fallen asleep, though some are still here. So these eyewitnesses can be tested. There's hundreds. This is basically a news flash from the ancient world dating to within three years of the death of Jesus. No religion can come close in terms of evidence and being able to compete for that level of substantial evidence. And so we shouldn't treat all religions and all religious claims as other equal in their footing with one another. They're, they contradict each other and telling us how to get to God. Let's use our mind, use our brains, and be prayerful in trying to discern which religious tr- claims are true and yes. which ones are false. Jesus says in John 18, I came to bear witness to the truth. Who's ever, whoever's on the side of truth is on my side. We need to get on the side of truth. Amen. Oh my goodness, Stephen. There's so much. We've only got two minutes in this segment, but there's so much I would like to continue to talk about. I appreciate you bringing the apologetics aspect into this because, and by the way, the 500 people at the same time that saw Jesus, there's no such thing as a mass hallucination. That's impossible. Uh, there's so many other things. Like you said, evidence. We we fail to talk about the evidence. There are some claims that can be tested from the New Testament. Many New Testament documents were written within like 35 years of the resurrection. And, and when Paul said, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So most of the people were still around, and they it would have been refuted if the Jews could have either produced a body or you know pr- proved that they were lying. It could have been refuted at that time, but they could not stop Christianity. They could not stop the way. Exactly. You'd have to ask the question, what is the best explanation for these facts surrounding the resurrection claims of Jesus of Nazareth? What's the best explanation for all of these facts, the empty tomb, the conversion of Jesus' brother James, the conversion of other skeptics, the conversion of Paul, 
their belief that they had bodily appearances of Jesus appear to them, that the belief that they saw him ascend into heaven, the belief that they ate with him, for crying out loud, they ate with him and hung out with him <laughs> yeah. for 40 days. The, the all, and also, another piece of evidence here, all of a sudden, overnight, all these disciples, if you look at the resurrection beliefs from Second Temple Judaism and Old Testament Judaism, you will find that it's completely foggy and ambiguous. What is the intermediary state? What does eternal life hold for us? Is there resurrection? Is there not? The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. The Pharisees believed in some kind of disembodied state. That's why when Peter gets released out of prison and shows up, they say, oh, it must be his angel. Hmm. They believe he kind of exists around as kind of like a ghost. And all of a sudden, overnight, you have everyone in the ancient world who's a Christian saying, we're going to be raised just like Jesus Christ. Hmm. We're going to have a glorified body, and that is the source of our hope. That's the source of our encouragement, knowing that he is an example and a model. He's a model and the means by which we're going to have life after life after death. Not just life after death, we're going to have an embodied life after death. That's got a radically un-Jewish belief. Where did that come from? How do we explain all these facts, the resurrection appearances? Mm-hmm. The best explanation is the one given by the eyewitnesses themselves, mm-hmm. that God raised Jesus from the dead, and they really did see him. And um, it's convinced a lot of skeptics, a lot of New Testament historians, and I would encourage people to continue um, researching this topic because it's very edifying. Mm-hmm. It gives us a dual warrant for our faith. God doesn't ask us to just believe blindly. He's left his trace in history to give us that left-brain grounding rationality in evidence in history. Wow, Stephen, uh, we haven't even got to God's sovereignty in the midst of COVID-19 yet, and people, are, I think, are supercharged now. They got that little, you know, the Holy Spirit's working, man, and just encouraging hearts right now because of the truth of Scripture and what we just discussed. Thank you for those points that you shared. There's so much. Uh, it is a reliable source we have. The Bible is truth. Uh, the book, The Second Coming of the New Age, uh, I encourage you guys to get that. And Stephen, I, you've been saved for five years uh, born again, and I'm just, I just want to say kudos, brother. We've got to take a break, but I'm just impressed with just your maturity, your level of knowledge and expertise in this biblical worldview. So thank you for the time, the studying, the effort that you put in. When we come back, we're going to be talking about God's sovereignty and hope and salvation in the midst of coronavirus and pandemics. Next on Stand Up for the Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. We are on the line with Stephen Bancar's former New Ager, and he is just incredible in his uh, knowledge of God's Word, his application of the Scriptures, his ability to refute false religions and deception. And right now, there are some Christians that are really struggling, Stephen, with God's sovereignty, meaning what he allows when it comes to diseases, sicknesses. Uh, shouldn't we all—I know there's a whole—the word faith, and, the, and uh, there's a gospel that preaches everyone should be healed and you should have enough faith. But what promises do we have in Scripture, Stephen, when it comes to uh, the healing of sicknesses and diseases? Because we know there are promises that God protects believers, but some people falsely try to grab Psalm 91, for example— and say, that's a covenant of protection for me in the midst of the coronavirus. Can you shed some light on some of these things? Yeah, we'd have to make a distinction between covenantal promises God made, you know, with Israel and within the camp of Israel and the nation of Israel. If you keep my commandments, he's going to bless us and look over us in a certain specific way versus the covenantal promises, um, that which we're guaranteed as believers in Christ. Um, and the New Covenant, we need, we need to make a distinction, too, between a principle and a promise. And so, by and large, I would say, yeah, God wants us to be, you know, you know, prosperous, and God wants us to be healthy, and, you know, God wants us to have, you know, some level of functionality and success in this life, but these things aren't promised to us in the New Testament. When you look at the lives of the apostles, for example, mm. most of them were martyred for their faith, yes. and Im- imprisoned, beaten, you know, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. Uh, scholars believe he had an eye problem, maybe partial blindness. In Galatians, he talks about the big letters with, with which he's writing this, and if he could, he would gorge out his eyes for the Galatians. And you have other people in the Testament who were sick. Paul mentions the individual who he's sending over who was sick. And Timothy, he tells to drink wine for the sake of his uh, digestion, his stomach. And so there's all these 
uh, verses telling us there was sickness present when the gifts of the Spirit were present. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But the point is, is that these aren't things that were promised in the same way we're promised eternal life. And in my opinion, to teach them as being promised, you're going to have a life perfectly, um, you know, free of all sickness and disease. Well, what happens when you, when you catch sickness and disease? We all catch the common cold. We all, a lot of people end up just getting, we all get sick and die eventually, right? So the question is, are we really guaranteed that? And from the Word of Faith teachers, they would say yes. And if you aren't walking in that, it's because there's something wrong with your faith. The reason is your lack of faith, or maybe there's hidden sins in your life, versus what I would say, no, God just allows things to play out in the natural world. He just chooses not to intervene. It doesn't have to do with your faith or any hidden sins in your life necessarily. Not that sins can't bring upon illness. I believe they can. But the point is, is that um, God doesn't necessarily promise he's going to protect us from disease and sickness in this life, but he does promise us that when we leave the body, when we leave this world immediately, uh, we're with Christ. He promises us when we take our last breath here, we take our first breath in heaven. He promises us when we close our eyes here, we open them in heaven. And he also promises us the new heavens and the new earth, wherein there's going to be no disease, no tears, no suffering, where those who are in heaven, the saints with Jesus, come back, they get reunited with their glorified bodies on the way down. Um, those who remain are glorified and caught up in the air to the, with the Lord, and there's going to be judgment, and there's going to be the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, and God promises to redeem creation, redeem his people, such that we enter into an eternal state with Christ where none of these things are present. present. And this is what the apostles set their hope on. When you look at Paul over and over, even from Peter, you know, Romans 18, right? Our present sufferings are not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Amen. They're always looking forward to something. You know, Colossians 3, set your mind on things above and not on things below. And when it just comes down to looking at in Scripture, what am I guaranteed? What do I get with the basic Christian life? Perfect protection from sickness and healing isn't one of them. Hmm. Eternal life, being with the Lord immediately in heaven is one of them, and eternal dwelling with the living God in a redeemed body where his glory lights up the world. There's no need for sun because his glory is lighting everything up, and there's just righteousness and love and peace and healing, and there's never a tear going to be shed again. That's it. That's what we're guaranteed. So I want us to place our faith in that which we're, faith in that which we're guaranteed, not on these, you know, principles or this chance, you know, that, you know, God can protect us. We should be praying for, for protection. But what's going to be our ultimate source of hope, joy, and peace? It needs to be something that is a promise from God on our lives. And when we look at that which we're guaranteed, it's more than enough to assure our hearts and comfort us in the midst of this pandemic. And I don't, I don't like this idea that, well, if I'm sick, it must be something wrong with me. That doesn't provide healing for people. No. That doesn't provide emotional comfort or, or joy or love in people. It causes panic, self-hate, um, doubt fear, and so forth. And the reason it does that is because it's not a biblical principle. No, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit exhibits peace in his believers, and the Word of God is meant to bring peace in our hearts. If it's not, Jesus says wisdom is known by the fruit it produces. Wisdom is justified for children, right? Wisdom Mm -hmm. from above is first peaceable. If it's not registering, if a teaching isn't registering in the regenerated heart and the witness of the Spirit as producing peace and edification in the believer, you know, we need to like take a look at the root of that teaching because Jesus says that's not a good uh, indicator. And you know, aside from the coronavirus and uh, you know what we are dealing with now, what about children who are born? In, they do nothing on their own. They get some sort of disease or sickness. They're or they're in a children's hospital. You mean to tell me that there are some people that would say because they or their parents don't have enough faith, these kids aren't going to be healed? That's that's heartbreaking, but it's almost infuriating, too. It is. And we have to keep this in mind, too, and and this is important. We have to ask the question, what is God's overarching plan for humanity and for the world? It's not to create happiness in this life. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to minimize suffering, but God's plan is not to get us, gather us into this nice, cozy nest in this life. His plan is to lead as many people as he can into a free loving relationship with himself. And when we understand that, maybe it's the case that only in such a world where there is precisely as much natural evil and suffering and death and moral evil as in this world, 
would the optimal or the, the most amount possible of people come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? God's plan for mankind in this life is salvation and redemption. So we need to look at everything that's going on through that lens, mm-hmm. right? It's not happiness for his people necessarily. It's not happiness for the world at large. It's redemption. And so when we understand that God is all-loving, we, and we know that his plan is salvific, we can deduce from that that God has morally sufficient reason for allowing these things to occur in the world. He's all good. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. He will never sin against us. He will never sin against humanity. And his plan is redemptive. He's all good. He wants to partner with mankind to bring people into an eternal relationship with himself. So when we see suffering and evil in the world, we have to remember, okay, well, it's not God's plan to create a nice, perfect dwelling state for people in this life. And perhaps this evil and this suffering, only in such a world where precisely these kinds of evils are present and this amount of evil present, would the optimal amount of people come into a free-loving relationship with them? Mm. Uh, we know that God uses these things, that we go through suffering, trials, sickness, pandemics. Um, sometimes, you know, we can be trained, disciplined. Um, what father does not discipline his son? We talked about Hebrews 12 on the podcast yesterday. We are refined sometimes when we need it, and other times we are pruned that we may bear more fruit. But let me get back to this idea of sovereignty, Stephen. God is not only sovereign and in complete control, but some people struggle with the fact that uh, the Bible also teaches that uh, Satan is the ruler of this age. Can you explain how that seems like a contradiction? Yeah, Satan is the one who is. Um, here's how we. Here's how we can. Um, I guess parse that. We would say that Satan's effect in the world is self-evident and pervasive. You know, we drink down sin like it's iniquity, and he's he's the prince of sin, and so in that sense, he's the ruler of this age, the god of this world, because his influence, unfortunately, is dominant in the world today, but. Satan is on God's leash, and that's very clear, Old Testament and New Testament. There's nothing Satan can do. If you read Job chapters 1 and 2, he mm-hmm. can't do without the permission of God, even in the New Testament, um, when the demons, are, be- are, sorry, the demons are, are begging to be sent into the pigs instead of into the abyss, um, which would have been eternal judgment for them, or at least awaiting eternal judgment. Jesus permitted them, mm. it says in Luke and Mark. He permitted them to go into the pigs. Yes. In another instance, when Jesus healed someone, the demons within the, the, the people that Jesus was walking by, they were crying out, saying, You are Jesus, the Son of the Blessed One. And it, and it says that Jesus permitted not the demons to speak. Mm. So he didn't allow them. There's times where he does allow them to do things, and he doesn't allow them to do things. Interesting. Um, and it, it, it does come down to the degree to which our heart is willing to participate in evil, right? Then Satan gets let off his leash a little bit into our lives, um, if we're not walking, you know, with the breastplate of righteousness on, if we're, you know, transgressing the commandments of God, we're giving a foothold to the devil, as it says. If we're going to sleep on our anger, for example, if we're p- participating in the sins of idolatry or sorcery, there's demons behind certain t- certain sins, at least, in the New Testament. And so we would want to say this. We would want to say that God, in terms of being God over this world, Jesus Christ rules and reigns from heaven. The Bible says that. He rules over everything, he's in possession of everything, and he is in complete control over everything. So when we say God is sovereign, we mean he over the earth and the universe. He owns the universe, he rules the universe, and he's in complete control. And when we say control, that doesn't mean that he's the one causing everything that's happening in the world. He's not the one effectually bringing to pass all the evil and all the suffering, but it means this. No evil or suffering can exist in this world. Nothing can move an inch to the left or to the right without the permissive will of God. God has to approve of it in that sense. He's all-powerful. He could stop it if he wanted to, but he has greater plans, greater redemptive purposes for allowing it to happen. But everything everything that exists in this world must first pass through the siphon of God's permissive will. And a lot of people struggle with that, but that's extremely biblical. This is like Mm -hmm. what you'd find in any textbook on systematic theology. And I'm going to read a quote here from from J.I. Packer. Um, I like this quote. This is from his Concise Theology. God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses and carries out all that he wills, and none can stay his hand or thwart his plans. Regularly, however, God exercises his sovereignty by letting—that's a key word there—he lets things 
take their course rather than by miraculous miraculous intrusions of a disruptive sort. So when it comes to the coronavirus, for example, there's only two games in town. Either God is directly causing the coronavirus as an act of judgment, or it arose naturally and he's redirecting it as an act of judgment. That's certainly possible when we look at Scripture, um, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus himself in Revelation 2, saying that he will bring judgment on a woman named who he calls Jezebel um, intentionally, and saying that you know he will throw her onto a sickbed and cause her children to die if she doesn't repent of the sin that she was causing the church to fall into. And obviously, the eschatological judgments of the book of Revelation are, you know, there's just a plethora of them, and this is coming from the hand of God himself. And, you know, in Revelation 6, you see people saying, hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that God is holy and righteous, and he pours out his wrath as just, fair, righteous judgment. Could it be the case that the coronavirus is such an instance, or he redirected a pre-existing evil to be a a judgment on humanity? It is possible. It's in the cards. But I would like to to say personally that the vast majority of evils that take place in the world are a result not of God acting as um, the direct cause, but as the remote cause. He's permitting things to take their course. He, He has to first allow it to come into being because he's completely sovereign. He's in control. But he allows it to come into being. It can't move an inch to the left or the right without his permission. But one, it's an exercise of God's sovereignty by letting things take their course. Yes. And those are the only two options. Either God's causing something or he's permitting something. Mm-hmm. And that gives me assurance in my heart as a believer because everything's in God's hand. Absolutely everything's in God's hand. Nothing can thwart his plans or purposes because it's in his hand. Nothing surprises God. God's not surprised by this. He's on the throne. Right? The earth is his footstool. He knows the beginning from the end. He declares the beginning from the end. Right? Like I want to partner with God in this. The one who's sovereign and completely in control over every last detail and who's going to redeem everything in the end. Like we need to be we need to be turning to God during this time and, and trusting in the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, knowing that everything that occurs, it's for a morally sufficient reason, because we serve a sovereign, loving God. Amen. Amen. I do want to bring that word thwart into uh, modern vernacular because Job 42.2 says, No plan of yours can be thwarted when he's talking to God. I'm glad you explained that in your video. You said God is the remote cause uh, of disease, and so I, I'm thankful that you gave us perspective on that. We've got to take a break, but when we come back, a, a lot more on this this idea of God's sovereignty and how he uses it, and sometimes it's up to our um, up to us to react or respond in a biblical way, understanding that we trust him and, and he is sovereign over all this. So much more with Stephen Bancars when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. We have our guest today, Stephen Bancars from Southern, or yeah, I guess you can say Southern Ontario in Canada. And um, we are talking so much about God's sovereignty. We talked a little bit about different religions in the first segment and uh, talked about the book, The Second Coming of the New Age, which I highly encourage you guys to check out. There's, there's so much information in there. What a great resource. But, Stephen, it, it kind of seems like we've come full, full circle now. Um, we do want to talk about eternal security, how secure believers are, and that perspective that, um, you know, we are here for such a time as this, but yet— our lives are but a vapor. There are unbelievers, people, if they don't repent, whatever religion they, they believe or don't believe, they will all stand before God in judgment. But that doesn't mean they will be in heaven or in paradise, as some like to think. Yeah, we could almost say, in one sense, you know, all religions do lead to God. They don't all lead to relationship with God. Mm-hmm. They all lead to God insofar as they all lead to God's throne of judgment. Mm-hmm. So we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The question is, who makes it past the judgment seat of Christ? Yes. Who's declared who's declared innocent and righteous on that day? And it will only be those who have repented and, and put their trust in Christ for salvation. Um, nobody who is an unbeliever will make it past the judgment seat of Christ because they're still in, under the weight and guilt of their sin. And so it's important to realize that everything in this life, as you said, it is temporary. We need, we need to have... You know, as Jonathan Edwards said, eternity stamped onto our eyeballs mm. during this time. 
Why? Because it's a source of hope and edification for believers. But for unbelievers, it helps them come to grips with the severity of understanding I am a mere mortal, I'm going to die one day, and I'm not right with God. You know, people need to stop suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and start allowing themselves to become self-honest and humble before God and say, God, I need forgiveness, I need mercy today. You know, I need you to intervene in my life because I'm in trouble before you. And that is a work of God in the heart of the sinner, and that's what I want to see come out of this. I want to see revival in terms of, not in terms of, you know, seeing, you know, wheelchairs stacked to the ceiling on these big, in these big stadiums, not necessarily that. I'm talking about people taking God seriously again, Mm -hmm. people concerned about their mortality again. And when it comes to the promises of God that we can take, you know, comfort in as believers, there is this misunderstanding. I want to to clarify this real quick. Um, It's not a heaven-hell dichotomy in Scripture. Heaven isn't the final state. And it's kind of confusing. It was confusing. I was like, okay, when I die, I'm going to go spend eternity with God in heaven. I'm going to be floating around like a ghost. Can I, like, teleport places? Like, I'm just in this disembodied, floaty, <laughs> ethereal state forever. And, like, am I able to—do we—can I touch things? Will my hand go through walls? Like, what's going to happen in heaven versus the actual eternal state for us is going to be the new heavens and the new earth mm. when Jesus Christ redeems creation— and gives us new bodies where we dwell with him, not in the ethereal intermediary state of heaven, but where the saints leave heaven with Jesus, and he creates and fashions a new heaven and new earth. I want to read the promise of God of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21. This is beautiful. And then I want to tie this into the unbeliever passage as well. I love this. Awesome. This is uh, Revelation 21, starting in ver- uh, 21, verse 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea refers to, it's a metaphor for chaos. In the Old Testament, they used the, um, the image of Leviathan to represent chaos and destruction. Mm. Destruction and chaos was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we need to be living our daily lives against the backdrop of the biblical worldview. Everything that we experience, everything we encounter, every pandemic, every natural evil, everything that doesn't go our way in this life needs to be hammocked within the context of what the Bible says is in store for us. Um, Jordan Peterson, a, a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, he points out that there's a lot of clinical research suggesting that most of our positive emotions we experience in this life come from what we think our future is going to hold, hmm. right? We're future-oriented creatures. We want to yes. you know, set ourselves up for survival, in, we're inclined towards you know, survival and our own welfare. And so a lot of our positive emotions are geared toward what we believe our future holds. And when we understand and believe and know that our future is one of eternal peace, rest, redemption, fellowship with God, that's going to dictate the way we live our lives, the way we treat people, and most importantly, relevant to this discussion, the way we we respond to natural evil in the world, to pandemics in the world. And it does say this as well. I want to read Revelation um, uh, verse 8 here, 21 verse 8, the verse just at the end of that last one I read, because it says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, meaning the unbeliever, the the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars— their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Mm. So our portion is to rule and reign with Christ. The portion of the unbeliever is eternal judgment in the lake of fire. And so I would encourage people today, if they're listening and they don't know where they stand with God, to consider what is my portion? What mm. is my inheritance? Yes. Where do I stand before the Most High today? Have I, am I covered with the blood of Jesus? Have I turned from my sin, put my faith in Him for salvation? Can I say my portion is with the Alpha and the Omega, 
who says, behold, I'm making all things new, or is my portion with the detestable and the murderers and those involved in regular, ongoing, perpetual lifestyle sins that the Bible says explicitly in places like, I believe I want to say 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a difference between fornicating and being a fornicator. And so it's not as though Christians can't ever slip and fall into sin. The difference is a Christian is grieved with that sin. He understands it's wrong, and he wants to change. Mm. And he comes before God and asks for forgiveness and prays that God would change him and give him the strength to overcome it. A fornicator is one lost in a lifestyle of sin and thinks it's okay. Right? Go read the book of John, especially First John. Um, First John, I'm talking about chapter 3, where it says, no one born of God continues to make a, a practice of sinning because yes. God's seeds abide in him, and he cannot continue on in sin. When you're regenerated, sin doesn't sit well with you anymore. When you've, given, you've been given a new heart, and God has completely transformed your nature and seated you in heavenly places with Christ, sin loses its flavor. It doesn't mean it won't tempt you. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that there's not pleasure in sin. The Bible talks about the pleasures of sin for a season. But there's a point. Is, the point is, your regenerated, born-again spirit and your renewed mind is grieved by that sin, versus waking up every day, premeditating sin, carrying it out, going to bed, sleep, sleeping like a baby. Waking up the next day, premeditating sin, carrying it out, sleeping like a baby. If that's you today, the, that you're displaying the evidence of someone who's not born again. Mm-hmm. And when we're in a time such as this, where you know the death rate is increased, and you know everyone is really susceptible to you know catching this virus, and nobody is guaranteed. 150,000 people die every single day. Nobody's guaranteed their next breath. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. Um, I really do hope that this virus will be used by God to stir in the hearts of people in the world to take eternity seriously and take the things of God seriously. Again, he loves people. He wants people in relationship with him, but he's not going to transgress his own standard and just blanket sin. Mm. He put that sin onto Christ, judged Christ in our place so that he could be both just and the justifier of sinners. Mm. And so he's given us provision. I would encourage people, turn to God and accept that provision he's offered. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. And I'm glad you used that word practice. I was just going to bring that up, and you went right there. So the Holy Spirit, I think, is moving in this conversation because practice is a very key word when it comes to sin, falling into sin, or making it a lifestyle. Because we know what practice is when it comes to sports or musical instrument or whatever else. We practice something to perfect it, to become you know, regular or good at it, and you can practice sin. Paul, John writes about it, so thank you for bringing that up. I want to go back to something you said about Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In uh, Revelation 1, verse 8, everything is covered past present and future. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So it's interesting that kind of the bookend there for, the, for Revelation, the book of Revelation, and that Jesus is all the Almighty, and in Christ alone we have our hope and we are saved. And I think of that hymn, No Guilt in Life, No Fear in Death, that is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And that's what we want to leave people with, Stephen, that hope that we have, that security and we've got about two more minutes. I just would love for you to, wherever the Holy Spirit wants to take you, and just share some final thoughts. Yeah, it's interesting. I love how Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, because we're not dealing with a bite-sized version of the Father. Hmm. We're dealing with someone who is truly God by nature, fully and completely and truly God. The Bible says that in Numbers, that a man can't die for another man's sin. So how is Jesus able to bear the sin and the wrath of God on the cross? Because he was full deity. It says in Colossians 2, 9, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is God by nature. That doesn't mean he's the Father. Jesus is distinct from the Father, but both the Father and Jesus are fully God by nature, and they exist as the one single tripersonal being named as Yahweh all throughout Scripture. And when Jesus came and took our sin on the cross— when he's hanging there and says, it is finished, he means the debt has been paid. 
every single thing that we had outstanding between mm-hmm. us and our relationship with God, all of our sins, the transaction was complete, and Jesus fully made that ransom for us, right? Jesus says in Mark ten forty five that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is what you would pay a slave owner to release the slave from the debt that they owe the master, right? We have an outstanding moral debt of justice between us and God. Jesus came and paid our fine so we, he can really, in one sense, legally dismiss our case, and we can be forgiven and enter into right relationship with him, be adopted by God. He's not, we're not just forgiven. We're his sons now. We're his daughters now. We're part of God's heavenly family. It says in Ephesians 4, we're accepted in the beloved. Amen. And as you quoted in that hymn there, it says there's no fear of death. Right? That is a privilege. Yes. That's a privilege of the redeemed life. We don't have to fear death because we know who we belong to. We know who conquered death on the cross. We know when Jesus rose from the dead, he was securing for us an eternal hope. That's why it says that he is the firstborn among many brethren. Doesn't mean he was created first, like some people will twist the text. It means he was the first example of a resurrection, of a bodily resurrection. That's meant to be an example of what we will have one day as well. But that fearlessness of death, that's a privilege only to the believer, not to the unbeliever. They need to fear death. They need to fear their mortality, right? They need to fear standing before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Mm. But for the believer, the one who's trusted in Christ and put their faith in him and him alone for their salvation, we don't have to fear death because he conquered death on the cross. And we've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a deposit of that which we're going to inherit in the next life, which is heaven, and then the eternal state with a resurrected body, with the resurrected Lord ruling and reigning with Christ for a never-ending amount of time. That's our hope. That needs to be our security and our comfort. The security and the comfort of the apostles all throughout Scripture, as we talked about earlier on the show, it wasn't just that God was loving. It wasn't just that God was sovereign. We talked about that. It wasn't just these things. Mm. It was understanding the biblical worldview understanding the promises of God, that which were guaranteed in Scripture. We're not guaranteed healing and all the benefits and pleasures we could ever want on this side of heaven. We are guaranteed healing, but that healing won't see its full effect until eternity. Amen. Right? So in one sense, you could say it is God's will that I will be healed, just not in this life. And yes. so when we take hold and hold fast of that which we are guaranteed, we have more than enough in Scripture to reassure our hearts, give us peace, and ground us during this time, because we don't have to fear death, because we're never going to die. Amen. Our security is in Him. No one can ever pluck us from His hand. Stephen Bancars, thank you so very much. Um, I will be praying for you. We will be praying um, just for God's direction, uh, your ministry. And people, you got to go to check out his YouTube channel, that video, COVID-19, God's Sovereignty and Eternal Life. God willing, we'll talk to you again, Stephen. Thank you, brother. God bless. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Thank you. Talk later. You bet. All right, when we come back, we'll tell you about Monday's guest on Stand Up For The Truth. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. Open Wisconsin rally at Madison, 1 p.m. today, Friday, and tomorrow in Ohio. Let Ohio Work Again protest. And uh, our guest Monday on Stand Up For The Truth from Ohio, Coach Dave Dobbenmeyer. He doesn't have any strong thoughts about what's happening with government's uh, governor's orders during the coronavirus pandemic. Yes, he does. We've got Dave Dobbenmeyer, Coach Dave, on Monday Stephen Bancars, man, share this podcast, please. What a phenomenal guest. Thank you so much for tuning in, and always keep speaking the truth about things that matter. Have a great weekend.